It is Friday, which means it is Courage Rising. I'm your host, Barry, and I have a special guest today, Jason Hoppyman. Is spelled, it pronounced that right? When you think you'll learn of yes, it? Well, I am Jason Hoppyman. I have my own podcast. It's Saturday Java with Jason, where we bring guests on. We talk about really interesting topics. It's more or less like an interview-type setting. Is there anything else you would like me to say? or? Sorry, I had to cough. I'm still getting no over problem. a cold. I ran out of my Mucinex, so you got to bear with me today. When you and me talked off the sh- or before the show and we... You know, you've got so many stories. And on Fridays, we talk about trauma. We talk about perseverance through the hard times. You know, in our society, the way we're set up and the way we've been raised through social media and this new generation of, let's get the, the, the easy pill to fix things. And we never learn how to deal with it. And one thing we want to talk about with you first is what got you into creating your podcast? Well, that's an easy thing. Um, I was a couch potato. And I'm like, you know, there's got to be something else out there. So I started listening to a podcast called Andy Frisella. Like MF CEO, and 
He does a program called 75 Hard, which is 75 days straight. And it's walking twice a day, well, exercising twice a day. One has to be outside reading, drinking a gallon of water. It's a whole big, long process. But I accomplished that, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I lost 40 pounds on that program. So I'm like, if I can get off my butt, get off the couch, and see what the world has to offer, then somebody else that's being a couch potato should do the same thing. There's more out there than just watching TV or playing your video games. So since I started this, I met a lot of people, had a lot of good conversations, and actually I've been doing it almost a year now, and I learned a lot, and I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, a lot of us, when we're transitioning out of the military, we're transitioning out of, you know, life changes, that is one of the big routines we all get into as we're looking for the next step, the next thing to do. And we spend so much time working so hard, being physical all the time, as we become couch potatoes. And right. So, you and know, if you had somebody being in the military, if you had somebody watching over you, you know, PT yeah. and all this, where now you're, you're home and you don't have nobody telling you what to do, so you now become self-conscious and sit in there and watch TV. You have nobody over your shoulder telling you what to do. That's it. We get very lost, unmotivated. And so that's the problem is that we have that no support system. We don't have the people there to help push us or to guide us. Now, the easiest way to explain this, and I know a lot of you guys listening understand this, it's like taking a 19-year-old in a 40, 50-year-old body. We're re-experiencing the, the world all over again. I mean, I look at people now, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm over 40, so I'm going to tell you that, and, you know, back when I was a kid, we used to go out looking for fun, being on our bikes, you know, I laugh now because everybody talks about it, but it's true, you know, we left when the, about 9 o'clock, we got back when the streetlights came on, so we were always out Ooh. doing things, exercising, riding our bikes, whatever it is. But now you have kids that same age on their phone, sitting there, eating junk food, not doing nothing. Now they became lazy and fat, you know, um, out of shape. You know, it's time we get out there and see what the world has to offer. You know, and that's it. If so many people don't realize that, you know, um, Actually, there was a post the other day on Facebook about that. Um, a little boy back in the 80s ended up getting kidnapped. Mom left him outside to play. He put, and she didn't check on him throughout the day, and then, you know, he never came home. So, and everyone's, you know, attacking the mom for this. But, you know, you got to remember what life was like back then. You know, you lived in a small town. Boys only came in the house to get to eat. 
if they even did that. They drank from water hoses. They peed outside. Girls only came in the house to pee. You were outside all the time. I was eight years old, walking to school by myself, um, probably about a mile and a half both ways. But still, eight years old, nine years old, you don't see kids doing that anymore. They're all being on a bus now. Mm-hmm. You know, times have changed. My, you yeah, know, my, I have 30, right, my, my town was 30,000 people. Yeah, I live still in a small town. About 1,200 people, everybody's home. And my nine-year-old daughter, I'll let her walk down the street by herself to her friend's house, and everyone looks at me like, I'm the mad mama. We live in a small town. She's walking on a sidewalk 10 houses down the road. I can see her the whole way. You know, but that's the society we live in. It's all about fear. I believe that times have gotten worse because back when I was younger, yeah, I would do that. I would walk a mile and a half both ways at years old. But I would not trust society right now with doing that with my own kids or having somebody else's kids. I would be so scared that something would happen to those kids because of the society we live in. In a, a lot of places, in most places, I'd say, yeah. But a lot has to depend on, you know, your neighborhood and your city. You know, and that's the sad part is, is that, you know, in the most part, and this is where we have, we struggle so much, is in the, you know, when you live on a military base, you have, you know everybody. You know your neighbors. You know, you know, you, you have that community spirit that college dorm and when you move out of that into the real world neighbors don't talk to neighbors you don't even know who your neighbor is half the time and all of that is a huge adjustment that you know we all have to struggle with right and well when you're uh, I was in the military so I want to thank you for your service I know people say that and they don't really mean it but I do uh, but being in a like in a gated community where only certain people are allowed in, whether that means a housing complex for the gated community or you're you know on base with a gate where you're checked, yeah, that's a different kind of situation that we're talking about. We're talking about living in a city or something like that where people would just come in wherever they want. That's a scary situation. It is. And it's sad that we now live in that society. You know, I'm wondering if it's every generation is getting worse because I heard of stories where my grandfather used to tell it or my dad used to tell me stories. And then looking at it when I was a kid, every generation, I think, changes that aspect of what they consider safe. That's true. 
But a lot has to do with, too, you know, your environment. You know, um, it seems like every generation, parents are less and less involved in raising their kids. So our kids are not learning right from wrong. They're not learning ethics. They're not learning values. You know, you go to Walmart now. How many kids do you see working compared to adults? You know, how many kids are, you know, move out of their parents' house and go to college now compared to what it used to be? I think one of the major problems is, too, is there there's so many split families right now of husband and wives that it's all it's a single family house where one parent is trying to do both jobs of the husband and the wife, the mother and the father, where they have two kids and now they're trying to work two jobs and keep that family together because it is a single family house. I think that's another problem too that we have in this society is parents don't stay together. Right. It's easier to divorce each other than it is to, to work it out and figure out what the issues are. Or we, you know, and a lot has to fall. Falls on, you know, this delusion of, you know, you see this a lot about, you know, finding that ideal person and, you know, being able, especially in the woman's mind more than the man's, but, you know, how it has to be, well, we can fix this with him. We can change this for him with him. I like this part of him. Or you have this ideal list, and you have to make all these check marks. And so we think something better comes along because he's not doing what I want him to do because we have this expectation. I want to live this housewife lifestyle because that's what everybody's portraying that they want. And instead of, you know, being happy with what you got, you got you get rid of to find that grass or greens on the other side. And one thing I wanted to ask you, because you're, you are a woman who ha- has a daughter, uh, do you believe that money is involved with it, where that spouse is kind of paid to leave because they know if they leave, they're going to get money from child support. If they leave, they're going to get help from the state, you know, whether that means, you know, discounted rent, whether that means free health insurance. I kind of look at it like if they stay together, the spouse gets less money than if they leave. That's a a part of it in a lot of families. You know, and everyone thinks my situation is bad because, um, you know, there's times we struggle for money. But, you know, my husband decided to take a job with less pay for the extra side benefit. So he works for a small construction company. But, so he only makes a minimum wage or a little more than that. 
But when I need him home, like, I'm having a bad day. My head hurts, you know. I can barely walk. His boss will let him come home and not dock him pay. Or something comes up and we need, you know, extra cash to help pay a bill or do something that we're short on. He'll loan him the money. For us, the perks outweigh the cost. But I was never raised in the world of money. You know, I grew up as a poor farm kid. My values don't trickle around that. But a lot of society does. You know, we need to have these name brand stuff. We need to have our house look like this. We need this to be like this. And a lot of people believe that, that, you know, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars to raise a kid. I've got a buddy right now, you know, that a couple of them that are getting through the roof charge for child support. And it's ridiculous amounts when it doesn't really take thousands and thousands of dollars a month to raise that child. And a lot of women think that they can turn around and don't have to work or you know, they can just live off that child support. Right. And I believe that, you know, my way of looking at it in that way, too, is a guy is struggling right now to make it. He can go get another job that pays 5 $10 more an hour, and his child support goes up. Well, because he got a better job or he got a promotion. I look at it, and people think, it's wrong for me to look at it like this, but, you know, if that guy gets a raise, his child support should not go up because the mother's the mother's expenses did not go up. So just because his raise goes up, her child support goes up, and the expenses never changed. So he's still struggling, and he's just home living off that extra raise. Then that's sad. That's the, that is the sad truth of it all. That solely is, usually it's the man that doesn't have the kids. But um, the woman will make her expenses go up just so that she can get that more money. Now, do you believe, like a lot of people out there, like I do and a lot of other men, that it should be on a debit card? that is only allowed to be used, like kind of blacked out for different things. It should be blacked out on gas. It should be blocked out for paying rent. It should be blocked out on adult clothes. All these should have restrictions so that that card is only used for stuff for that kid. Yeah, I really do. You know, and then I believe that the extra money should be put into a fund for the kids when they get older. You know, right they now we're going to get a lot. We're, we're going to get a lot of people mad at us for saying that, but it's true. Like you can't just live off you. It's meant for the kid. You know, it shouldn't. I get a lot of slack because I don't take the side of the women and how women should be. 
But, you know, when it comes to things like this, I truly believe the middle road or more towards the fair route. And, you know, it's like women in combat duty. I don't believe they should be there. Women shouldn't be on the front line. And it's the same thing. You know, men get a raw deal in society. They get so stigmatized now that we are teaching our younger generations, we're teaching our kids that it's not okay to be a man. And I get a lot of slack because you'll hear me talk on my shows quite a bit, you know, my son's a little turd, but he's a boy. You know, he plays in the mud. He comes up with smart comments. He does things just to be a little turd. You know, like the other day, he's picking his nose, and I yell at him to knock it off. And he tells me, no, it's my nose. And then I tell him it's gross. And he looks at me and he goes, so I'm a boy. I'm supposed to be that way. I laugh. See, I agree with both sides because I understand what he's going through. Yes, he's a boy. They do that. Yes, it's disgusting. But what boy do you know of that never picked his nose? That's it, you know. But, you know, one thing I don't like, talk about boys and girls and stuff, one thing that gets me is girls are okay to show emotions. I talked to a guy about this on my show. It's okay for a girl to cry. It's okay for a girl to be upset. It's okay for women to be different. Men are not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to show emotion. They're not allowed to get angry. Well, if a guy doesn't show emotions, if he doesn't cry, if he doesn't act normal, he's not a real man. He's a sissy. Or he's not really part of society. Then what are we raising the kid, the boys to be? Are we raising them to be a depressed person who has to live in a shadow because he can't show emotion, he can't be who he wants to be. That's it. And if we they do, they're sissies or, you know, they're not a man. I and that is the way you know, I, mean, I have a little different take on that just because my kids are autistic. And I mean, so one of the Yeah. Go ahead. If you see a guy crying, it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually because if you if his mother dies or if his dog dies, if his son dies, you're telling me that guy should not cry. He should just walk away like nothing is wrong. That's it. And, you know, that's the sad part about it. But, you know, my experience, you know, especially with me being in the military, is a lot of us lose it. And we bury it. This is in society in general. It's not even just man now. You know, 
we are being brainwashed in society that the only healthy emotion to have is happy. If you're sad or you're mad or you're anything but happy, there's something wrong with you. You've either got anxiety or you've got depression, you've got PTSD because your mom thank you. There's something wrong with you. You have to be happy all the time. And what and I talked to a few I talked to a few people and the problem with depression, your serotonin is low. They say, Okay, you're depressed. What do they do? They give you medication to keep your serotonin at a level where it kind of stays. They don't ever give you medication to raise your serotonin to get you feeling good again. They give you medication to keep it level. Why? Because they want you to go back and get more pills. If they figure a way to fix your depression and raise it up, I'm not saying it's like that with everybody, but... If you have low serotonin, they don't give you medication to raise your serotonin. They keep it where it is. Why? So you go back and get more pills. All right. I'm going to tell you something. I want you to do something. I want you to find me the research that connects serotonin levels to depression. Okay. You you can find it. No. No. Because you're not going to find it. There is actually no research and actual studies done to prove depression is linked to serotonin levels. I'm just repeating what I was told. Nope, that's it. That is the narrative that's been created years ago. That is the link that they, that pharmaceutical companies have come up with. And the ironic part is, is that you have more serotonin levels in your gut than you do in your brain. We cannot test the human brain while you're alive, which is why there's not a lot of studies done. This has all been a theory that they have ran with for years, which is why 90% of antidepressants do not work. And what they do work as is they blanket you so you have no emotions. You don't feel anything. You are just there. You're not happy. You're not sad. Just just levels out everything. <clears throat> That's also why a lot of antidepressants will actually make you feel more suicidal than you were when you started with. And you know, one thing that I don't like is having. Uh, one thing that gets to me, I guess you could say, is people like you who were in this service who come back and they do have depression, PTSD, shell shock, whatever you want to call it. Uh, They come back and they're not looked at as having an illness. And I heard other veterans that I talked to too say this, and a lot of people just say, oh, knock it off, get over it, this and that. And PTSD, depression, is an, a, a real thing. It is. And um, we stopped calling it PTSD. We call it post-war syndrome. Um, Bush had it 
put as an actual disorder so that the veterans could get disability for it because of how debilitating it can be. And this is more for um, the Vietnam era veterans than the modern ones. But, you know, it's like the comments I see a lot of times on social media created by civilians, you know, triggers are our problems, not theirs. And we're supposed to be able to monitor and, you know, check our triggers and whatever you do is okay. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you about, a little bit about the experience I've had. So the biggest thing is with a lot of us is you can't corner us. You can't block us. By that I mean, you know, you go up on us and there's no escape route for us. Um, me and my mother-in-law got into an argument and she, I kept walking away. I kept walking away. I ended up getting trapped in my deck to where I couldn't leave away from her. I ran my mouth and told her where to fucking go. And I did this because it was better you're going to kick because you can't trap us. You can't sneak up on us. You know, we're in this constant state of alert, and when you, someone's showing aggression, it's an automatic trigger that we had to we have to learn to shut off. And right. people don't I, heard that from, I heard that from many different people. My grandfathers uh, told me that, uh, and many other veterans I heard <laughs> told me the same story. Don't, don't corner them. A lot of people that have been in Vietnam, World War II, stuff like that, even people that have been in Iraq, even on 4th of July, hearing the fireworks go off, that could even set them off, too. I guess time. Um, there's a company that came out a few years ago, and they actually created signs free for veterans that they could put up on their, their front yard about fireworks. Because fireworks was, is a huge trigger. I've overcome it, and I teach people how to overcome their triggers by understanding what their mind's going through and what their body's going through and learning how to regulate and calm themselves and overcome it. But for July, I would literally hide in my garage, headset on, crank music, playing darts to where I couldn't hear the fireworks at all. And I'd get very drunk. Now, I'm now does that point where I can does that, be outside with my kids, but. Does that almost put you back into the war, almost a war zone type deal where you're surrounded by gunshots and bobs going off? Is that kind of what you refer to it as? <laughs> At first, I'd get flashbacks. And that's what they're called. Now it just, that, before I got over it, it just set my anxiety off. I didn't get the full flashbacks. I just thought I was having a breakdown. I thought I was having a heart attack. I just couldn't physically deal with it around me. Because I talked to several different veterans. Uh, I have one pending now. I talked to Vincent Ferranza, who was a World War II veteran. And I talked to a couple other ones, and they all kind of told me the same thing, that they don't even like fireworks. They don't like loud noises. 
even if something goes off like a backfire in a car, it mm-hmm. almost sends them back to the war. Um, for some people it is. Um, my biggest trauma wasn't the fireworks. Mine is a smell of smoke. I can tell you what's on fire, where it's on fire, just from the smell. I cannot eat anything smoke. I will physically get ill. Um, my very first thing I did in the military after doing a couple of tornado cleanouts here in Minnesota was 9-11. I was part of search and rescue. And then I turned search and recovery. So that smell is my biggest trigger. And uh, ironic as it is, um, you can smell the very faint smell of smoke. So like we had in our house or our garage, we have a gas stove. And it got bumped against our wall to go into the house because it's attached. And a couple of years ago, um, we had a fire, smoldering fire in between the walls of the house and the garage. I could smell it. Andy, my husband, comes out and he goes, "There's nothing." I go, "No, there's something." I kept waking him up every every five ten minutes. I'm like, "There is something wrong here. There's fire somewhere." Either you're going to help me or I'm going to figure it out. I can't do this. Thought I, he literally thought I was crazy and having a flashback. And it turned out that there was a fire in the wall. <clears throat> then he could finally, it came enough that he could smell it. And he ended up breaking the hole in the wall and goes, holy shit. Going, yeah, now you understand what I'm telling you. I'm not. You know, same thing with the dryer fire or, you know, he's we're cooking and I can smell it. He goes, it's like, I'm sorry. You know, he's learning to accept that I can do this. That I have that heightened awareness when it comes to that. And I'm working on shutting it down, but, you know, I live in a very small farming community. So everybody burns leaves and it just drives me nuts. So what, if anything, in your past that brings you to the flashbacks? There's fires, there's loud noises. Is there anything else that people should know about veterans to be careful of and stop doing it just for the fact of doing it? Well, each person has their own triggers, you know, um, and this kind of goes into play with not just veterans, but, you know, um, all individuals that go through extreme trauma, like abuse, domestic abuse victims, you know, everyone that, you know, my regulars all know my stories about my acts and how, you know, I had to flee to a war zone to get a divorce and be safe, ironic as that sounds. Um, your brain catalogs things differently and so each person their triggers are based on how their their brain works you know so for me it's the smell of smoke it's certain sounds and then um confrontations 
you know, some things for me are, you know, when it comes to my, my husband now, he's learned and we've never gone through anything. But like from my back from when my domestic abuse days, you know, we could be having a heated discussion, won't even be an argument. And he'll move his hand a certain way and I'd automatically power down and play. Or he'll get a tone of voice and it'll kick my anxiety in. You know, and this is where guys have it really rough in general because <coughs> when it comes to, you know, like domestic violence, they have to learn how to deal with women that have all these different triggers that they don't even realize they have. You know, I never realized that him moving his hand that way kicked my my mind into gear and it automatically reacted. Right, because the way we talk with our guy friends is a lot different than the way we talk with women. Because with guys, we can be harsh. We can be as blunt as we want to be. And that doesn't mean we're being aggressive, but you do that with a woman, you're being aggressive. You know, and that's it. And people don't realize all that stuff. You know, human brain is the coolest thing in the world to me. That's also one of the laziest organs in our body. And the human brain, its only purpose is to keep you alive. And so the way it catalogs things and the way it sets things and sets our triggers off is it takes different things and then so different triggers become so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize it until we're in those situations. It takes a lot of work to, and that's the biggest misconception, is that people believe because, and we're told this, you know, if we have PTSD, we have trauma, we have these triggers, we're stuck like that for life. And it's not the case. You know, um, once you learn what your triggers are and you learn, okay, this is what I'm thinking, now this is what, and you put it together with what your body's feeling, it's kind of like going through the, um, the stages of grief. It's similar to that. And once you go through and you feel the anger of what happened, and you go through the emotions and actually feel the emotions, you know, that's a big reason why trauma affects different people differently. Because how you react in that moment is what how it help, helps you or hinders you. You know, that's why so many veterans, especially World War II or Vietnam, have had so many triggers. Because you are taught in the military to take that, bury it at the moment, and then deal with it later. The problem with us is, is that later never comes. So you're talking about, just change the subject for one second, you're talking about domestic violence. That to me is a big thing, a big issue with society these days is how everybody is treated. 
if you don't like the way somebody is being treated, it's either going to be mental abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And that's one of the big problems nowadays. Even you said you had to leave and get into a more abusive relationship than staying in the marriage you're in. That's a big thing. That That's pretty bad when you got to go into service to get out of a relationship where you're being abused. If you're being abused, there's no reason for it. There's no reason for somebody to be abusive to you. You are better than that. It is. But, you know, the sad part is, and this is my biggest pet peeve that I've my husband gets tired listening to me rant about it, is the women, and I say this because more women than men do this. Big example, Guy Depp and Amber Heard. Women call abuse when it never happens as an excuse to attack the man. And because of so many women claiming things that didn't happen or the ones that actually does happen, it's harder for them to be believed. One thing that got me, I forgot the case, but there's a woman who said she was raped. And the guy was looking at years behind bars because she said that he raped her. Came to find out she lied. And he w- they just kind of said, okay, you lied. They let her go. And he still got that name, everything like that, because... She lied about that situation. So, and you know what happened to her? She, she, nothing happened. She walked yep. away. And she ruined his life because everybody thinks that he still did it. So, yeah. if you cry wolf, I don't care what it is. Whatever he was looking at, you should get that for putting him through that. So, if he's looking at 10 years and it came out you lied, well, then you get 10 years because that's what he should have got. You know, the sad part is rape happens in the military. I'm not denying that. But a lot of cases in the military are accusations. And the thing is, is people don't realize, and this is why women have such a bad rap in the military, is that you get drunk, you sleep with somebody, and it gets passed around. It's like a little high school. And you get embarrassed when you start making accusations. And so these women that it really legitimately happens to, and I know a woman that it happened to, and she wasn't believed. And no one helped her. There are so many accusations out there. That's the problem. There's so many accusations Nobody knows who to believe and who not to believe. Because even if you were raped, people are going to say, oh, it was probably consensual. But on the other hand, if it wasn't consensual, it could be said it was. So who do you believe? That's it. Or you get blamed because you were drinking. Or you got blamed because you were in that situation. I think that this whole situation of control, whether it's a guy controlling a woman or a woman controlling a guy, or even worse, the kid is in the middle getting it too. The whole situation 
where if you're being controlled, you have to find a way out of there. Whether that means leaving with yourself without anything and going to a shelter. Anything is better than the situation you're in now. You know, and that's, you brought up a good point. You know, that's the sad part about things now is that parents spend so much time being petty and using children as leverage against the other. It's the kids that suffer. Yeah, you know, I heard of many cases where the, the, kid was a pawn in the middle of the yeah. situation. And I did one, a podcast, where the woman was a lawyer and she was representing a family where the kid was in the middle. That is so wrong on so many levels that there's not just abuse on the mother anymore. That kid is getting abused being put in this situation where he has no control over the situation he's even in. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a voice. And because there's emotional abuse and control, a lot of times judges are like, well, it's not physical. And judges sometimes don't look at the emotional part of it or the control aspect. They just want to know if it's physical. You know, and the sad part is is emotional and mental abuse is more damaging than physical abuse. I agree with that 100%. I mean, there's no physical scars for people to look at, but there are a lot of mental scars for people can't see. And that's a problem with veterans, too, is there's a lot of mental scars that they have that they just can't see. That's it. And a lot of times it doesn't pop up and you don't really like, like me, for instance, I didn't know this stuff until after the fact. And that's what's hard for veterans is that we've already been discharged and this happens and this happens and our triggers all of a sudden come out. And then we got to turn around and spend years fighting to get our disability up, to get our disability and get believed that, you know, these things happened and we need help. And this is where I am not an advocate for the VA, you know, I was doing really good till COVID hit and it was the lockdown that got me. The fact you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't do anything, your face had to be covered in a mask. I'm claustrophobic, so a mask, a mask I couldn't breathe. And then it started being to the point, you know, it was like being overseas and you always had, you know, your scarf over your face a little bit because of the sand and stuff. And I called the VA to get a therapist. And they go, well, we don't have any available, we'll call you. So COVID hit 2020, four years later, I'm still waiting for a call for a therapist. You 
And that's why it does. I I heard things even going back decades where uh, World War II veterans and people from Vietnam, people from Korea, the Korean War, or hardly any of them got therapy from the VA because they kind of went through what you've been going through. So it's been going mm-hmm. on that long. It should be fixed by now. Yeah. No, it gets worse every year, and that's why I created the organization that I created and why I created support groups. Um, it's basically like AA for military and first responders, and now we're creating one for civilians. So we have that place to go talk and be able to talk about what we're going through and overcome what we're dealing with because there is no services. You know, you have all these companies that raise money for suicide prevention, but there's very few companies or organizations that actually help with the mental health aspect of it. And my question is, is where does that money go? If you're raising millions and millions of dollars to help mental health issues with veterans, why aren't there more organizations that do it? Well, I can tell you something that I heard that's pretty astounding is that there's some companies, some foundations that only pay 10% to that cause because that a lot of companies only pay that so that they can say, oh, we donated. And the rest of it goes either into the pockets or different other organizations that aren't really involved with that one foundation. You know, my other favorite is when they're raising money. They have a picture of a soldier up there. <coughs> and, like, their little hat trick is doing a rucksack march. 98% of veterans would never, ever do a rucksack march to raise money for a cause. We are not going to march down the street in our rucksack, in our gear, to raise money for something. No offense, but we've done it for real. We don't do it again for fun. Another thing that really gets me is the people out there who do that, who weren't a veteran, who do it in what's called stolen valor. They never went through the service. They never knew what it was like to become a soldier, but yet they're wearing the valor, acting like they are a soldier. That's what gets me mad, is those videos that go viral because of the people that do that. Mm -hmm. Or the spouses that use their names to make millions of dollars. I had one on my podcast. He's kind of an American hero, I would say. His name was Vincent Ferranza. And he got into a few different things that he's done, and I asked him about the stolen valor, and he said he won't talk about it because he kind of gave a piece of his mind before I got on the air with him. And so let's just say whoever you mention that to with a veteran, they don't like it, and I know that every veteran out there has a problem with civilians wearing valor that they did not deserve. And I'll give you the statistics. So out of the population of the U.S., 
only 30% of the population signs up for military duty. Out of that 30%, only 10% of them qualify to go to boot camp. So just because you sign up doesn't mean you're going to make it in the boot camp. Out of that 10%, only 3% of that population actually makes it through boot camp and becomes an official soldier. That's kind of staggering, those statistics. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't believe you, but when you think of it, that means out of 100 people, only three people make it. Yeah. There's, when uh, you, your boot camp classes, when you go through boot camp, are only about 60 people. And when you go through, half of them will either quit or not make it all the way through. No, you, you take those three percent. Go ahead. No, if you if you take those three percent, how many of those three percent actually make it farther and go and have the possibility of going into special forces? Would you say maybe a quarter of those three percent can actually make it into special forces, or you say it's even less than that? To make special forces, it's like point five percent. Special forces is an elite. Uh, in a very elite group. And for those that don't know, that means that th- those are actually considered seals and stuff like that is what I'm talking about. And in yeah, case you don't know elite. what special forces are. You've got Top Gun, you've got um, the SEALs, you've got the Delta Force. These are an elite force of individuals that literally defy the laws of logic and can do the most amazing thing. And I listen to a few of them, and some of the stories I hear, Go Willink is one of them that I listen to, and um, there's a few other ones that I listen to that are just amazing stories. And the stories that they tell and what they got to go through like the SEALs go through a hell week, which is, I, I I thought about it, and there's no way that I would be able to physically accomplish that. A lot, a lot of those get actually, when they're in boot camp, you have recruiters for the different divisions that come in and watch, and they will start picking these individuals from boot camp on who they see have that potential to become them. It's actually pretty now, cool. Now, did you ever hear of a guy by the name of Goggins? Yep. Now, people don't know that he was a special forces, but he mm-hmm. went in and he does what's called ultra marathons, which is a marathon is 26.2. He does mm-hmm. ultra, which is like 150 to 250 mile marathons for days. So, like we, when you do, um, when you were in the service, 
did you ever run anything close to a marathon, or did you guys do shorter runs than that? How did that go? Because I was never in the service, so I really don't know. Um, it's an optional thing. It's not a requirement. But a lot of us, what we would do is we'd run, we did runs for the Fallen, what they were called. And um, what that is is there's, depending on what base you're at, there would be a mile marker. And it was to raise money for the families of soldiers that passed away during the battle. For me, it was um, uh, Rocky Freedom, Middle East Wars after 9-11. And so depending on how many people, soldiers did make it in that base, depends on how much we run. But we would run in each, each mile marker. Some of them would have the families there. Others would be um, just little signs up to like, so you knew who these people were and what you were doing. Um, we called them fun runs. It was designed to, for our units, our companies, our platoons, to be able to do something together for a good cause. Fun run, but was it really? I bet you it was really hard work doing those, huh? Yes and no. It was fun for the fact that it was something different, and we would do it as a group. So it wasn't where we were, you know, balls to the walls running like we do for, like, our PTs and stuff where we're sitting there, you know, just pounding our butts and, you know, getting that time in. It was – we made it fun. So we had, you know, a couple guys would come out with speakers, and we would be out running with the speakers and talking and hanging out, you know. It was a chance for us to get together to something different and have that camaraderie and to be able to – bring awareness to the situation and have fun and have fun you know we do like the Santa run where the you know and now this gets construed now because of the era we live in but you know we do what we call a fun run where the the guys would dress up like girls and the girls would dress up like guys and so the guys would be in dresses and heels and you know wigs and be and just have fun and trying to see them run. That would totally go against society now. Correct. You know, and I never told where, you know, the guy did this, you know, I had to make fun of us, but, you know, that's just how we are. We all, I always come with the disclaimer that I'm German, Irish, and military. So I have mouth, I have the filter gets busted, and I don't take shit. You you say something, you corner me, I'm going to use that mouth, and I'm going to put you down. And so, you know, I never understood when people would have this fit about, you know, the guys dressing up like a girl just to make fun of, you know, try to give us a hard time, how that was degrading towards women. And now it's run into a whole new world, it's, you know. You know, but, the whole society, this whole society situation where everybody is offended for every little situation. You know, I grew up on different shows where, like, I grew up with the aspects of all in the family. I grew up with aspects of, you know, shows like that that were totally off the wall. And then my comedians were Eddie Murphy. Uh, Richard Pryor, you know, Red Fox, 
you listen to those, you know, turn those on and see what they talked about. You know, Eddie Murphy. I mean, you can't play those nowadays because everybody will get so offended. Have a little bit of fun and laugh a little bit and stop being offended. You know, we, that's the whole point, though. You know, to me, it doesn't make sense that we have to walk around with kid gloves and worry about offending everybody for everything. I heard the best one. Is it, I offended you, or did you let yourself be offended? And that's true. You know, what bugs me the most about all that is, like, you're on Facebook, and people will literally attack you that you don't even know who they are based on something you believe in. Or it's something somebody did 50 years ago, and then now they can't get a job, they can't do this or this or this, even though that was kind of a thing back then. It wasn't a big deal. You know, about my podcast, I don't care who you are. I don't care what color skin you are. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care who you voted for. I take anybody on, and the reason why, we're all equal. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care if you're what race you are. I mean, I look at it like we are one race. We're a human race. We have to love each other for who you are. Exactly. You know, like the big thing right now is Aunt Jemima. People are trying to get her taken off the syrup containers. Her family is pushing to keep her on. That was her legacy. That was who she was. And they're looking at, well, you know, she dressed this way and she was forced to do, she wasn't forced to do anything. She loved what she did. She loved being that spokesperson. And then they look at, well, she didn't make that much money. But she did, if you look at the time period, that was a lot of money back then. You know, times have changed so much that, you know, and there's a stigma, I guess you could say, and... Disney did a movie a long time ago, and it was taken out of, taken off the air totally. You never hear about it anymore, and Disney won't ever release it ever again. Called Songs of the South, and it has to do with slavery. Yeah, and people will go, "Oh, Song of the South, that's a song." I said, "No, it's a movie by Disney, but Disney can never release it again because it has to do with slaves." But slaves were so long ago, but they can't release it. Why? Because it offends people, and it brings back, you know, slavery was years ago, but you still can't talk about it. That's it. You know, you look at people like, you know, Shirley Temple. She made movies with, uh, what is his name? I know you're talking but, about, yeah. You know, but, you know, they started bringing her into it and stuff like that. That's like, look at Elvis. You know, he took J. 
jazz and rock and roll, and he did things that, you know, he was a bad man back in the day. Because of what I mean, he you said. Have, what he did. A lot of times they, they wouldn't uh, videotape his lower half because of the dances he was doing. They were called provocative. I mean, look, look at what they do now. You know, it's really hard to find something to watch on TV that is non-demonic, it is non-violent, it is not sexual, just some wholesome TV to watch. And when they find something that's wholesome to watch, they take it off. I mean, I grew up with Looney Tunes. I grew up with Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, uh... They took that off because it was too violent. But they put things on that are even worse than that now, but in their own way. I mean, mm-hmm. they're coming out and they're pushing, they're pushing things onto kids right now that kids should not even be thinking about at their age. And it's because of what they put in TV. Yes, when I was watching it, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, would go out and shoot each other. But that's too violent. But look actually what's on TV now. And then if you got YouTube, and, you know, my biggest um, problem with YouTube was the height of the war. You could literally go on YouTube and watch videos of soldiers being killed. And they wouldn't now, take it off. And one of the things that gets me is kids are allowed on YouTube, but they can also type in this video, that video, and they could fall into like a wormhole of YouTube and then come across videos that they should not be seeing because they started watching this one video. 20 videos later, they're now recommended to watch this video, and that video might be inappropriate for them. So even YouTube isn't really set up for kids anymore. No. It's not. You know, that's why, you know, like my kids will watch YouTube. My son watches the stupid unboxing videos. They're so obnoxious. But, you know, their stuff is linked to my phone and my computer. So I can real real time see what they're watching. And I can turn around and take it off and block it. And I can go back and see it. But you have parents that don't do that, who just let their kids go up in their room and kind of have control, and they're not being a supervisor or watched. So they are doing things and being on YouTube or other websites that are not age appropriate for that age of that kid. You know, that's what we talked about earlier, where parents are not involved in their kids' lives. They're not watching what they're doing. They're not talking to them. They're not playing with them. You know, you, there's no such thing as family fun day anymore, where families just stop, unplug, and just do something. You know, most families you, don't sit at the dinner table anymore and sit down and eat together. You know what gets me? Go out to eat one day and sit there when you go out and realize how many 
like you go to a restaurant during dinner when there's something going on, look and see how many people are actually eating dinner with their family there on their phone. They're not sitting there talking with each other. They're all on their phones. That's it. I mean, you know, right now we created a technology that has taken over all of our lives. And it's sick because the only time the families really get together is when there's no Wi-Fi or no internet connection. Well, even kids sit together in a room and text each other. They don't actually physically talk. One thing that gets me is you text somebody and a lot of time arguments happen because of the text that was just sent. Emotions get lost in a text. I could text you, Mary, what are you thinking? I don't mean to say that in a nasty way, but that could be taken one or two ways. Hey, what's on your mind? Or oh, you better rethink that whole thought you just had. It doesn't, no, you know, the emotion gets lost. So if you text somebody, you got to be careful how you text it because it could be taken the wrong way. Yeah. Or you use the wrong emoji. I still do not understand what all that crap means. I am one of those when people think I'm mad because I text in full words and full sentences. Because it takes me so long to text. Don't understand you. Okay. And this is my explanation. I lived in the military. I lived in the world of acronyms. My brain does not comprehend civilian acronyms. Other than like an SEO and a CRM. And it takes me so long to analyze the acronyms to figure out, you know, what it means. So I just use full words. And apparently that means you're mad. No, I just don't know how to text your world. I believe in talking and using words. You know, one thing that, you know, you're talking about being in the military and using acronyms. I actually had my power out for about a week one time. And I actually had to go down to the city and get a box of MREs. I'm sorry. (laughs) People don't realize that you guys had to eat those. And some of them are, are really disgusting. Oh, I don't know yeah. how you do it. The only good one is um, like a chef boy RD. There's like a, a ravioli, and then there's like a a pasta one. But that's it. They're they're horrible, and you can literally it tell you you're trained and you know you can only literally eat them for 28 days straight. On the 29th day, you are puking your guts out. I mean, you have no. It's good because you're hungry. I like the one. Um, I'll be honest with you. It, it's a tuna fish one, I think, that was kind of good. Other than that, the rest of them are disgusting. The only thing good in there is a peanut butter and the jelly and the cracker. Yeah. Or the candy bar. I didn't have the candy bar in there. I had the tootsie roll. That's like the best but part of the Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you talk about acronyms for that. I know some acronyms, but I, like, MREs are kind of, but, you know, that's one thing is talking to veterans. Like I said, I talked to a few, 
and some of the stories that I heard. I mean, Vincent Speranza, he is a he is off the air. You told me you heard of him, uh, and but he was you know because you went to that city and you actually had he was. Let me tell you about it because people might not know who he was. He was actually an Air Force, and he went out to Germany in World War Two, and. His platoon got shot up, so he was in a church, and somebody wanted uh, a beer before they passed away. He went to the tavern. There was no mugs left, so he pulled up a helmet, brought it back to the church, and passed it around. And everybody had a beer before they went home, all because of him. Now you go there now, and you order that beer, and they give it to you in a helmet not a mug. So I guess you were there and you saw that too? You know, a lot of people may not have heard the name of who we are, but they've heard what we've done. which kind of gives us that little bit of anonymity. But that's like talking about how the different branches we see each other. Like we make fun of the Air Force, the Army does, and calls them the Care Force because they sit on their, their butts of stairs in offices. And then, like, the um, Air Force calls the Army the bullet catchers. So do you and the Air Force, the Army and the Air Force, work together at some point, or is that totally different? No, um, we work together on some things. Um, So we technically only have branches of the military. We have the Army and the Navy. The Marines are joined with the Navy and the Air Force is joined with the Army. Because our Constitution only allows two forms of military. And we've divided that up. And so, like, the animosity with the Air Force and the Army is that, you know, the Army and Air Force are a budget. So a lot of the money in the budget goes to the Air Force as opposed to the Army. The Air Force gets treated better. They have better food. They get, you know, better hotels. There's a little jealousy there. I I get that totally. I mean, I I understand, um, you know, there could be animosity there. But does that really play out um, feeling-wise when you're actually in combat? No. Um, nope. We are battle buddies through and through, no matter what branch, what. You do your job. We depend on each other to help us. You know, you'll watch any movie. You know, armies on the ground, we're, 
you're getting overtaken, we call in air support. You know, we depend on each other. They are our only line of defense. You know, and that there's a line that comes there's a line from a movie that comes into play right there and it says nothing like the smell of napalm in the morning. That's it. I mean people might not know, I don't want to give it away, but that's one hell of a movie. It is. Now, if you can actually say what movie partakes war the best, I would either say, in my eyes as a civilian, either Saving Private Ryan, Platoon, or Full Metal Jacket. Those would be my three as a civilian of what war is actually like. Now, if you talk to a survivor, especially World War II survivor, They'll tell you Pearl Harbor. When Pearl Harbor was made, they had to escort out a lot of World War II veterans because of how realistic that movie was. They were getting shot back. And my grandfather was uh, in the Battle of the Bulge, and he went to go see Saving Private Ryan. And we picked him up, and he couldn't say anything on the ride home. It kind of hit him so hard. That brought bad memories for him. You know, the sad part is, is that the war that doesn't get any credit or any accolade for, and not even really mentioned much, is the Korean War. And how many World War II soldiers had to go Go home, turn around, and go back to go to Korea. You know, that's the thing is, if you watch, actually, if you watch uh, Rambo, the original mm-hmm. one, people don't know that the the sheriff of that town was a, a veteran of the Korean War. They believe that's why he had it out for Rambo so bad, because Rambo was in Vietnam, and the sheriff was in Korea. So I, there's a thing going around the internet that that's why he had it out for Rambo so hard, because Rambo got the credit, and he never did. Do you know the story behind how Rambo was made? I heard it, yeah. But why don't you say it for the people that don't know? I do know, but I don't want to leave people hanging. So Rambo was actually written by Sylvester Stallone. He was a nobody when he wrote that. And he took his little butt and went to producer, the producer, producer, director, director, to sell that script. And most people told him he would never make it. He would never be anything. It was the mm-hmm. first thing he ever did, and because of that, they didn't even think the movie would ever make it. You know, and Sylvester Stallone had a hard time in life because people don't realize that when he was born, he was born paralyzed on one side of his body. 
And he had to learn how to use that side of his body and make it work. That's why when you see him talk, he only talks out of one side of his face, his mouth. And talk about no. people who, talking about people that overcame issues, uh, I'm not sure if you know, um, there's a thing called BAMF, which is badass mother, you can finish it out the rest. But my favorite war hero of them all, somebody that really fits that description, is a guy by the name of Roy Benavides, if you ever heard of him. No. He was a one-man killing machine in Vietnam. He went and he stepped on a landmine and he was paralyzed. Months later, he walked out of the hospital and became, I believe it was a SEAL. I've heard he the story. Was Yep, he was sent into Vietnam, and his buddy got killed or got shot up. So he ran to the hospital, into the helicopter, and went into the middle of a combat zone with just a knife and a medical basket. And he saved, I think it was 30 men, by himself. So... If you you got to look him up on YouTube. He is a real life Rambo. You know that's why part of the reason why I got into studying the brain, and I'm in the field that I'm in. I'm doing radio. Was how two people. I'll give you an example of it. Um, before my time, my uncle got shot in a hunting incident. And what um, the gun went off and they were shooting weapons and um, he got shot in the head. And he was missing over half of his life. And they didn't think he survived. And the other half that he had was full of beating. And a guy next to him was in a car accident and hit his head. And he never woke up. My uncle ended up being able to walk and talk and be like a regular person. And how the will to live, the will and the perseverance to want to improve whatever you're doing has such a huge impact on how you recover from an incident. You know, you hear stories of soldiers like that that, you know, told they're never going to walk again end up, like, that's not going to happen. I'm going to do this. And you can heal your own body. And they've actually proven this. Um, there's a new study that just came out. The amount of time it takes you to heal from an injury or from an illness can be set up by you just doing it in your mind to heal, in your sense of time. The more you sit there and you feel sorry for yourself, the longer it's going to take you to overcome whatever you're dealing with. It's kind of like mind over matter then? Literally. Your mind has the power to kill you or keep you alive. 
heal you or make you sick. You know, studies done with women who wanted a child so bad you could never couldn't have one that they actually physically start showing signs and becoming they call it a false pregnancy where they're even their stomach will grow like they're pregnant. That is how powerful the human mind the human mind is. You know, the more stress you're under, the more you dwell on that stress, the more you're going to get sick. The more, you know, there's stories of, in proven fact, of people who've ended up with cancer because they're so stressed out in life, yet your body will start attacking itself. Study going on right now with this about, you know, this increase in cancer, this increase in um illnesses and this whole fear mongering we live in currently you know COVID you know they predict deaths are going to be higher because people aren't being vaccinated you know you don't when you watch the news you watch TV you're not seeing anything good and you start dwelling on all these different negative things and how that negative affects your, your body You know, that's why I just stopped watching the news, because when you watch the news, it's never a positive thing. It's always negative news. They never say nothing positive. So when you turn it on, by the time you're done watching it, you feel bad because you're living in a world that's going to hell, but it's not. There's still a lot of people out there doing good, but they won't ever say what the positives are. Right. Well, it's like a good example is for Thanksgiving. That car that, you know, ended up barricading into the um, the uh, checkpoint to go into Canada and over in New York, over by Buffalo, off the Niagara Falls there. You know, the first thing you heard of was possible terrorism. I mean, but that wasn't I when I was younger, years ago, I was working at McDonald's, and we did a fundraiser that for the local homeless shelter. I called um, at least five or six different radio, news stations on the radio and stuff like that, TV, and I said, you know, we're doing this. Can you guys put something on there? They said, oh, no, we can't do that. There's not enough time. But I said, I'm like, well, okay, there's not enough time. I turned it on. It was all negative stuff. They won't put nothing positive that the community does on the news. Yeah. You know, like last year, for instance, when I was taking the boys out to Buffalo and they're raising money, I tried to get the kids on the local news station. To bring awareness to help 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 people donate to help get them to be at the um, naval park. News wouldn't cover it because it's possible. You know, our local newspaper is a little different. Um, they do and, and they only do this once a year, but it's a kindness paper and they'll set put out a their paper of nothing but good news. 
But we live in such a negative society. Everything is always negative. Everything is always bad. I mean, heck, let's just go to Google and pull up the front page of the news. I guarantee you there is nothing positive in the first page. You know, I'm not trying to get political, but even the political aspect of it, if you look, there's there's nothing positive even in the political race. It's They're attacking each other. You know, even if you look, I'm not going to say what political party I'm with. That's not really necessary. But if you look, the political parties actually attack each other because you always have one person that's smiling and the other person has a stupid look on their face. They can never put both people together that are smiling. It's always one person looks stupid and the other person looks intelligent all the time. Yep. And then, you know, I'm, my big issue is um, pawns and political races. You know it's an election year because you hear that I hate, hate the phrase, the veterans. And they make all these promises and never follow through with any of them. And you know what gets me is people in the military don't, people in, I would say, the civilians don't realize that the president is in charge. He's the biggest one in the military. You have to do what he says because you have generals, you have sergeants, this and that. But the president is commander-in-chief. Everything goes on him with the military. So if he wants to cause a war, he can do that because he is the head of the military. Isn't that a scary thought? I mean, granted, there's a lot of protocols in place before that can happen, but still, you know, we have a president that doesn't even know what country we're in half the time. Controlling the military. Right. That's the thing. Like, I, if the commander in chief wants to do something scary, he has the right to do it, whether it's Biden, Trump, or anybody, Reagan, Nixon, they all have the opportunity because they have that one control over everybody. It is. But, you know, it's like the big thing, and I'm not being political here, but, you know, the big thing that Congress kept making a deal, big deal about when Trump was president was he's got the nuclear code. And you do realize one man cannot set off our nuclear attack. There is a, and there is a chain of command that has to be followed. There has to be procedures, there's protocols, there's, this is the biggest pain in the ass, but yet, you know, there's so many procedures in place that have to be, and criteria that has to be met before things can happen. Which is why change takes forever in the military. Everything has to go up a chain of command. Everything has to go through different channels. Now, and that is good in a sense, and then we have a, we have a crazy person controlling everything, but, you know, 
progress and things take time. And just like with a law being passed, um, if it gets turned down at one point, it could be sent down again and it has to repeat that chain of command. It might be five or six times before it reaches the end of it, which is the precedent or not, but it's not just the first act that gets passed. It might have five or six different uh, reviews. Some things, some things can be done, you know, instantly. But that, you know, a good example of this is 9/11, and how every aspect of chain of command failed because everybody was afraid to do something. You know, theoretically, NORAD could have caught the planes. The planes should have been shot down. We were all caught with our pants down, and no one knew what to do. It's like Pearl Harbor. You know, people talk about Pearl Harbor as being a conspiracy theory that could have been prevented because a newspaper article a week before that said, you know, attack on the U.S. by Japan is imminent. But we were in peacetime. No one really ever thinks we're going to get hit. You know what gets me is you brought up 9-11 a while ago, and I was around with 9-11. Some people don't remember it. Some people do. I will never forget where I was. Yet when 9-11 happened, I think that was the way it was handled by the U.S. I think was the best way it could have been handled at the the best way possible. Yeah, and I'm talking. What? I'm talking. After, I'm talking after the fact. I'm talking yeah. after that first couple planes hit. Yeah. That we were we emptied the skies. President Bush at that time did not wait. He took it into his own hands, and he said, "I declare war. This has to be cleaned up." And I believe he led the fight that was meant to be laid. Mm-hmm. You know, the sad part is, this, uh, my kids at school get mad. You know that they do not teach 9-11 in school? Why? It's one of the darkest <laughs> times it should be taught. Too traumatizing for kids. To learn about it, and I, my school gets mad because I pull my kids out every year. We go to a memorial site. There's one by us that honors them. My kids watch the bell being pulled. We go through the name. I explain to them in a kid-friendly way of what happened because I was involved. But most kids nowadays, this generation of elementary school kids, do not know what 9/11 is. You know, I could tell you right where I was when it happened, and it was our generation's Pearl Harbor. Yep. You know, it like 
you could ask anybody that's fought in World War II, where were you? And they can tell you right where they were when Pearl Harbor died. When somebody was born and was around when JFK got shot, they could tell you where he where they were. Me, I can tell you and my generation can tell you where they were on nine eleven. They they say it's too traumatizing for little kid, elementary school kids to understand that. And my argument is, what about those kids that were in that school right next to those towers that watched the family die? What about the men, women? What about the men, women, mother and fathers that were in those buildings where now the families are not together anymore, and the kids now have to be brought up with no parents. Yep, and the ones that did survive, you know, they're dying of cancer because of all the asbestos that was in the air. I still have to go get checked every year. A lot of yeah, our friends like, that, that day are passing away of cancer because of being there. You know, and you guys have one very big person helping you out that I'm glad he does what he does. But that's John Stewart. He's been there for you guys a lot, and I do appreciate what he does for you guys. There's quite a few. I mean, you've got Gary Sinise. You know, um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, he took what he learned from Orson. And when 9-11 happened, um, really push-started him into building smart homes for veterans. And he does this of course what he does um, Every year he goes to different bases and he brings this food that is like the best thing in the world and gives us a break. You know, um, the guy from um, Adam Sandler movies, um, one with crazy eyes, he actually used to be part of the New York Fire Department. And he dropped what he was doing on the, after 9-11 and ran and helped and went back. And you know, organizations to help the fire department. We got to do something where I'm not just talking to you and me, I'm talking society. We have to do something to teach these kids what 9-11 is all about. The kids that are not taught and the kids that should know what it is about. Because oh, I, I think history, I think if we don't do something, history will repeat itself. Definitely. And it has been. You know, um, we are literally repeating history over and over and over again. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know what caused the fall of Rome in Greece? 
You're asking me? I don't really follow that that much. So ancient Greece and ancient Rome, their biggest issue was immigration. They opened their borders and let people come in, and they were overtaken. Their welfare system, they had. Welfare is not new. Welfare is as old as time. And that's, they got, what happened with them is what's happening to the U.S. now. You bring in so many people, we put them on welfare, we take care of them, and they lose who they are. Because instead of them adapting to the way of life, of a, the way the American dream is, we modify it to them. You know, we talk about slavery. You don't talk about the Irish in slavery. The Irish was enslaved just like the African Americans were. You see, my problem is you, you hit a, a nerve right there, too. But I'm going to talk to you about a moment about what I don't like. The welfare is designed to help people in their time of need. There's people out there that abuse this situation because I know of one person right now who had a kid. Her her welfare was going to end when the kid reached five. So Mm -hmm. she went out and got pregnant as soon as that kid turned four. Why? So she can have a second kid and collect it for another five years. This now that's her second kid. She did it again four years later. So now she has three kids and on welfare fifteen years. You know, I was on it for a while and the hardest part with that system the way the system is designed is once you get on it, if you truly want to get off, it's very hard to get off. Because when you, you try to work that little extra to get that little extra money to save up to get unstuck. The amount of resources you get gets lower and lower and lower. So you end up in this bracket of you get, you know, extra five dollars, you lose five dollars in your income or your your food stamps or your supplement. So you never get that chance to get ahead. Right. You know, that's the same thing that's the same thing with child support too. Is you have you pay child support for one kid, it's 130 bucks. But you have two kids now with that one woman, and it's not going to be 260 like you think it's going to be. It's going to be, let's say, 180 So you lose money having two kids, and that's what people don't realize. They're like, well, if I have two kids, that's twice as much child support. No, it's not. It depends on your income. Right, but what I'm saying though is if you have one kid, that's twenty percent. You have two kids, I think it goes up to thirty something percent. It's not quite double like people think it's gonna be. Because <coughs> it's done on a percentage, it's not done upon a real amount. Um, I know one person who's paying a hundred dollars a month a hundred dollars a week right now. If they have two kids they'd be paying $140 a week. And the mother thought they would be paying 200 a week. Because, and that's the thing. A lot of people think right now 
It's, oh, how do I get more money without working or without doing anything? Like I, we, like we said before, people are living off that child support. Instead of going out and getting a job, they're looking at it as free income. The part that bugs me about child support is it doesn't take into consideration the needs of the kids. Like, for instance, special needs kids that need extra help, need extra stuff. That literally do cost more money. Mm-hmm. It's a big based on your income. So a family right. that you know has regular kids will get the same amount as a family that has two special kids that need that extra cash to pay for different services, to pay for different things that insurances don't cover. Right. I mean, I, I, I personally, like I said before, it should be done upon what is needed, and it should be put on a card. I'm just reviewing what I said before. It should be put on a card only to be used for the kid. And if you do that, and the income is taken in to effect of that household, where if that mother and father are working, that income should be decided to upon child support because that one person is working right now, the father or the mother, whoever it is, is struggling right now trying to pay child support to you who's working and making good money because now you probably are married and that kid is taken care of by you and the stepfather and the original parent is working his ass off, struggling, and you're not, and all you want is just his money. Right. And the interest alone kills you. And then all the fees that go into it on top of that off. You're paying a hundred dollars child support, fifty of that goes to fees. And interest. And property. Mm-hmm. So only a fraction of that money actually goes to the child. And it's even worse if a parent was incarcerated. Because now that child support is figured out, if that person was in jail for five years, that child support still gets added up every week, every month, every year that that person was in jail. So now he gets out. He's been paying longer than that kid's over 18 because he still has a rearage. Mm-hmm. I know a gentleman who's a good friend of my husband that it took almost an act of God to fix his child support after the child passed away in a car accident. The system still had him pain and made him pay child support even though that child no longer existed. Well, Mary, this has been fun. I appreciate it. We are almost out of time. So, I think we touched on a really good few points. I just wanted to mention one thing that really meant a lot to me is I did one podcast um, on my own time on my on my podcast list. It's called Who Banks for Pets, and I just want to mention them really quick. 
they mean a lot to me because I had a dog that passed away, and they helped out with food pantries that can't get food for animals. We always are looking for food for people, but the pets are forgotten. So there's up in Massachusetts, and that means a lot to me because they don't work with uh People, they work with the food pantries, but they try to get food for pets in need. And I want to touch base with them really quick. It's out of Massachusetts. It's called Food Bank for Pets. If anybody can donate food or money to them or any food bank, don't forget about your four-legged animals out there that can't get food for themselves. Can you send me their link, and we will post their link up in our social media group? Yes, I would love to do that. They, they mean a lot to me. I had a dog that passed away, so I try to give them as much publicity as I can. So their information will be posted later on today in our Facebook group, and let's help make sure, because, you know, when we have food insecurity as humans, the last thing we think about is our pets. And a lot of us feed our pets like our kids. Let's help out everybody we possibly can. Right, and they are more or less forgotten uh, when it comes to feeding people and stuff like that. You know, we have food stamps, in my area, I'm not sure what you got, what they call it in your area, but, you know, the state helps out for us. But the animals are forgotten. And then when it comes to a time of need, they either get thrown out or given away or put in a shelter. That's part of your family. They should be treated like one of your kids. So please don't forget your little four-legged friends. Or two-legged. Right. Food banks for pets. And they're in the southern, I believe it's uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. So as we run down the clock today, thank you so much for being here today. And I look forward to having you come on again. I would like that. As you know, Courage Rising airs every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And join us back here at noon today for Kindness and Golden Rule Rising with our very own. Captain Len Kane, a gentleman who has spent his life both in the military and civilian giving back and helping others. And you'll hear about all the stuff that he's been doing to help make the world a better place. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you back here at noon. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Optimize My Life Radio. We hope you found today's show insightful and empowering. 
Remember to follow us on social media and optimize my life for updates, additional resources, and to stay connected with our community. Join us back here tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern for another enriching episode as we continue our journey towards a more fulfilling and optimized life. Until then, take care, and remember to make sure you count.